So when I was in college, I went, uh, I always tease my mom about this. Um, my parents took my younger, or my older sister to school. They took my younger sister to school. And they took my brother to school. When I got ready to go, as number two, my sister and I bought a car together. And my parents said, see ya. <laughs> so I drove myself to college, went with my sister. And uh, for some reason, I, I don't know what, she had to be there earlier than I did or whatever. And um, <clears throat> so I spent about a week in the dormitories, and they were empty because it was mostly freshmen and some sophomores. And uh, so I remember I'm up on the 10th floor of Towers at Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and I'm just sitting in my room just trying to, you know, make time for stuff or whatever. I wasn't saved at the time. So I was kind of bored, you know, so I'm just sitting there. I think I was reading one night. And all of a sudden, I think it was on the second day or so, second or third day, this guy kind of walked by. I had my door open, and he was the only other guy on the whole entire side, ten stories. And um, so he kind of walked by, and he stopped. He looked in, and he said, Hi, my name is David Spot. Who are you? And I introduced myself to him. He was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, so he said, um, Are you by yourself? And I said, Yeah, I, don't, I haven't even met my roommate yet. He hadn't been there. And he's like, Well, I'm here all by myself, too. you mind if I just come in and hang out with you? I said, sure. You know, so he came in. I sat there and read the book I was reading, and he sat there and he read his book. But we kind of hung out over the course of that week, and he became my best friend. And we did everything together. I mean, we'd go to walk down to classes together. He was also computer science, which is what I was, so he was in my classes. We even got a job together. Both of us worked as consultants for the school, doing um, some software-type stuff. And... Um, <clears throat> We'd go, there was a bowling alley at school, we would go bowling together, we played ping pong together, we played pool together, hung out all the time. We were like this. But neither one of us were saved. And I've shared before how I got saved near the end of my freshman year. I think it was about March, it was end of February, early March, where I actually got saved. And um, he actually got saved about the same time. Now, he was raised in a Lutheran home. I was raised in a Catholic home. So both of us were religious in nature, but both of us got saved about the same time. The guy that led me to Christ also led him to Christ. Now, prior to getting saved, um, we had certain behavior and certain things that we did, and we weren't always um, the wisest people. Um, One of the things we did was we started getting some hacking stuff where we were kind of hacking into the mainframe at at college and stuff, and ultimately he got caught and lost his job because of it. Um, We didn't really consider that to be wrong or immoral. It's just things that we did, right? We also did a lot of pranks in the dorms. One particular um, day, evening actually, we went and we removed all of the fluorescent lights on every floor, on all ten floors of the dormitory, so that when all the guys got back drunk from the bars, there would be no lights anywhere in that side of towers. And we did a number of things like that. We you know, never really got caught for it, um, but we, were, we developed a reputation of being somewhat mischievous. In fact, there was one particular time where we, we pulled a prank on this guy on our floor that involved his door collapsing and crushing part of his bed and breaking part of his dresser and you know the dorm resident assistant knew that we had done it and called us in and uh, after laughing himself about it he finally got serious and had to chastise us and wrote us up and stuff so we developed this reputation for not being the nicest guys and kind of mischievous and everything else but like I said we both got saved about the same time and what's interesting about that is our relationship then as a result of that 
also changed over time. We started attending Campus Crusade for Christ together. We went to a discipleship group together. And our relationship changed from that mischievous relationship to where we began to work side by side as servants in Campus Crusade for Christ, ministering together and doing other things. And so we went from one relationship to a totally different relationship. We actually ended up moving in together. And uh, my whole point in bringing this up is that our relationship changed as a result of us coming to know Christ. And it went from getting each other in trouble, so to speak, to encouraging one another as believers in Christ. And that really is ultimately the way that it is supposed to be. And that relates to what we're going to talk about today. If you remember... Throughout this book of Colossians, what we've been talking about is the all-sufficiency of Christ. And Paul has driven that home. He's talked about our need for faith in Christ alone because the Colossians were starting to struggle with that. The Galatians had already jumped the shark, you know, jumped out of the boat because they had abandoned faith alone in Christ and began to adopt a lot of legalistic things for their faith. And Paul refers to them as foolish. talks about them abandoning the gospel. And Paul didn't want to have that happen with the Colossians, but they were starting to head in that same direction. And so Paul has done a number of things here to talk to them about what they have in Christ. And he's encouraged them along that line. So primarily the first two chapters are what I call theology, because it's, it's loaded with theology of what we have in Christ based on our faith in Him, and why we don't need all these other things, all the religion, the, the um, things that you try to add to your faith to somehow make you more spiritual, or make you more righteous, or make you more approved in God's eyes. And so there's a lot of theology in the first two chapters. Then we get to chapter 3, and Paul actually goes into a more practical application of those truths, which is something he typically does in his letters. He often does theology first, and then he gets into the practical application. And so he did that with chapter 3. So when we were in chapter 3, he called on the Colossians to turn their attention back to Christ and away from all of those other religious, legalistic things that they were trying to do. And as part of that, he basically encourages them to continue walking in Jesus Christ. Because they had been raised up with Christ, he called them to keep seeking and setting their mind on things above, where Christ was at. Because they would someday be revealed with Christ in glory, he called on them to put to death the old self and put on that new self. Finally, he said since they were chosen by God in Christ, he called them to put on the virtues of Christ. And so he began to get into the practical application of what it meant to live by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, at the very end of our section last time, verse 17, Paul says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That's chapter 3, verse 17. And that actually is the bridge for what we get into today. In other words, Paul moves from this discussion of seeking the things above, focusing on Christ, putting on the virtues of Christ, And at the end of that he says, everything you do in word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that then becomes the bridge to even more practical stuff that he's going to talk about today. And it has to do with relationships. And so he talks about relationships between a husband and a wife, between a parent and a child, and between a slave and a master. So that's what we're going to talk about Today, I have entitled this, The New Relationships Found in Jesus Christ. And the overall premise is that because we are in Christ, 
our relationships with others should be different and should reflect that relationship with Christ. And that is true when we are believer to believer, but also believer to unbeliever. What people should see in us, in our relationships, is a reflection of our faith in Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. But today we're going to be challenged by that, especially in these three different types of relationships that he talks about. Paul's parallel passage, we'll be jumping back and forth to this, he talks about these same things in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want, you can kind of have your finger at Colossians 3, and then Ephesians 5, we'll go back and forth between those, we'll be looking up some other passages as well. So both of these passages, Ephesians 5 and chapter 3 of Colossians here, deal with applying our faith in Christ to the relationships that we have. He suggests at least two things with this. The first one is that we're supposed to live out our faith in Christ and do everything in the name of the Lord, and that should reflect this relationship with Christ. second thing that comes out of all of this is that our faith in and our knowledge of Christ should direct our behavior in these relationships. That old adage, what would Jesus do, applies to every one of those relationships. We ought to be asking that when it comes to our relationship with our spouses, our relationship with our children, our relationship with coworkers or, or others. We should always be asking... What would Jesus Christ do in this particular situation? How might my reaction or the way that I relate to these people reflect my love and faith in Jesus Christ? So let's go ahead and look at this. The first thing he addresses is husbands and wives. The behavior of husbands and wives should be reflective of their faith in Jesus Christ. So, the behavior of husbands and wives should reflect their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18, chapter 3. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We say it simply, a wife's faith in Jesus Christ should be demonstrated through submission to her husband. I don't apologize for that. I know that offends some people. I don't think it probably offends anybody here. But that offends a lot of people, the idea of a wife being subject to her husband. But that's what Paul says. Again, wives, be subject to your husbands. The word Paul uses here means to place oneself under the authority of somebody else. In this context, it refers to a wife placing herself under the authority and the responsibility of her husband. The Bible establishes that the husband is the head of the wife, meaning that he has been given responsibility for her and authority over her. When you look back at Genesis chapter 2 and you look at the creation of Adam and Eve, what you find is that Adam is given headship over his wife And what that means is that he is responsible for her before God, but he also has authority over her. Those are the two things that summarize a man's relationship to his wife. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, as God is the head of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. If we want to understand a man's headship over his wife, we simply have to look at Christ. He is head over the church. And how we as the body of Christ are supposed to respond to Christ as our head, that's the example that a woman is to follow when it comes to her husband. This was established by God all the way back in the Garden of Eden when he created Adam and Eve. If you go back there with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, I want to just read that because I think there's some important things there for us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. 
after God had created Adam. He created Adam first. There's a reason for that. Part of it is because he becomes the responsible figure. He's the one who's given authority. He names all the animals, which is a, an example of exercising authority that God had given to him. And then we find this. Then the Lord, said, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. It doesn't say lonely. It says alone. Adam could not accomplish what God had commanded him to do in Genesis chapter 1. He was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it. He couldn't do that. He couldn't carry out the responsibility or the task that God had given to him without a helpmate. And none of the animals could help him do that. So he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Somebody to come alongside him and make it possible for him to do what God had created him for. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So what did God do? Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What we basically see here is God looks at Adam and says, Adam needs somebody to help. And so he reaches in, he takes a part of his side, that's a more literal rendering of that, it's not a rib per se, but part of his side, and he forms that into Eve, and then brings Eve to Adam, and Adam's response is, wow, she's just like me, just like me. She stood out among the animals, and he recognized what God had done for him. But you notice in the text that it refers to her as his helper. That's a word that's even used of God in the Old Testament. It's not a derogatory term. She is to come alongside him to be his partner, to become one flesh with him, because without her he cannot do what he needed to do. In fact, a great example of that is in Proverbs chapter 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. It's remarkable there that it says that he is known in the gates because of her. In fact, that whole part of that chapter, we're told that it's the words of his mother that he's repeating there. It's what... The author says his mother taught him about being a godly woman and the way that what she does reflects his success as a king. And so that's what we see from Genesis chapter 2. And so when we come back to Colossians chapter 3 here, Paul, when he says, wives, be subject to your husbands, he has that in mind. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, it uses a phrase, respect. She's to respect him which means to respect the authority that God has given to him. So there's this created order by God in the relationship between a husband and a wife, with the husband as the head of the wife and the wife as the helpmate who comes alongside him, recognizing her valuable purpose in helping him accomplish what God commanded mankind to do all the way back in Genesis 1. Now, unless we think this is some demeaning or devaluing thing for women, nothing could be further from the truth biblically. Submission is a Christian virtue. Christ submitted to God the Father. He submitted to the Roman authorities. He submitted, ultimately, to taking on human flesh. He submitted himself to death on a cross. That was a Christian virtue. It was established in Christ. He gave us a demonstration of what it meant to be submissive. And likewise, we are called to be submissive as well, to be like Christ. 
We're called to subject ourselves to other people, to other believers. We're called to submit ourselves to governing authorities, to recognize the authority that God has placed over them. We're even told to subject ourselves one to another. In fact, in the Ephesians 5 passage, that's the way the whole thing starts. It says, subject yourselves one to another, wives to your husbands. A lot of the English translations say, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands in that passage. Paul doesn't have that word there. What he says is, subject yourselves one to another, wives to your husbands. Then he says, husbands, love your wives, which is a form of subjection to them. And so, it's not a derogatory thing for wives to respect their husbands as their heads. It's a very Christ-like thing, in fact. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at the Bible, the Bible repeatedly holds women and wives in high regard. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. I don't find it all that crazy that the first to come to the tomb were women. Christ revealed himself first and foremost to women at the tomb. We see a number of times that Paul praises certain women in the New Testament, Phoebe and others. And so they are held in high regard in both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, Peter even refers to Sarah holds her up as an example, but even in the passage suggests she submitted to her husband and that is an example for all godly women. So they're held in high regard throughout the scriptures. Now what's interesting about this particular verse here, 18, Paul uses the passive voice. In other words, they were to subject themselves. It's a passive voice. It's something they do. It's something they do voluntarily. It's not something that should be forced upon them by their husbands. Paul writes here that a wife's willful submission to her husband is fitting in the Lord. That's a key phrase. Fitting in the Lord. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. For something to be fitting in the Lord means that it represents him. means that he's pleased by it. It means that it looks like him. It's fitting. We know what that means. If you're a manager in a particular business, you have to behave a certain way, right? It's fitting to behave a certain way. Um, as an IT person in my job at work I'm expected to act like a professional it's unbefitting of me to behave otherwise well I think I shared a couple of weeks ago about this um, post that somebody had put into an eschatology forum that I'm part of in Facebook and um, he was making an argument for some stuff you know and um, all came across as very godly very just you know authoritative and, but he had made a couple of comments where I thought well, it's a little out of place but for the most part you know so I thought I'm going to check out his personal page and I went to his personal page it was filled with vulgarity and sexual innuendos I mean filled and I, I was almost shocked I'm like this guy he's a believer I mean it wasn't just little off color here and there I mean it was outright Pagan, what this guy was doing. Graphic sexual stu- comments that he was making, using vulgarity, the F bomb, and this. And, and I'm, I'm like, this guy's got like a dual life. He's one guy in the forum, but then somebody told that behavior. I almost, I didn't, but I was almost like going to post and go, dude, I just checked out your personal page. I, I, I am blown away by the dishonor, but I, I didn't. I didn't know that it was my role or my place, but the reality of it was, it was not fitting. It was totally outside the bounds of what it means to represent Christ. So he was one way in one place and totally different in another place. It wasn't fitting in the Lord. And Paul here says that wives, when they subject themselves to their husband, it's fitting, he says, in the Lord. Paul gives 
A couple of other reasons why it's fitting in the Lord elsewhere. Turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 5. Titus chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is encouraging women here to be sensible, he says, to be pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And then listen to this. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Think about that for a moment. How you behave as a wife, and this is actually true of any one of us as Christians, how we behave has an impact on how others will view the word of God. And so he says here, wives, subject to their own husbands so that the word of God would not be dishonored. How many of you heard that before? Well, that wasn't very Christian-like. In the world, the world already doesn't understand what it means to be a Christian, and so they use that misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ to attack us. But it's awful when they attack us because we don't behave according to the word and it disparages the word as a result of that. So one of the reasons Paul gives is that it's fitting. The second reason he gives is that we shouldn't behave in a way towards our spouse that is in a manner that will disparage the word. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll get another reason why. Because Peter gives us another reason why wives should subject themselves to their husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Well, I would submit to my husband if he were a believer. Or I will submit to my husband if he were better. I would submit to my husband if he loved me more and treated me like Jesus would. Then I would subject, but I won't. Well, but Peter says, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold and jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, I don't, I'm not suggesting you wives have to call your husbands Lord in this case. Back then it was a term of endearment. And an understanding of authority in the family. But, you know, I, if you want to call your husband, Amy, you want to call me Lord? No? No? Okay. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And he goes on to talk about husbands there. We'll do that in a second here. So another reason that we find in the scriptures for wives recognizing and submitting to their husbands' authority and responsibility over them is so that they might win them without a word if they aren't living like they should as Christians or even as an unsaved husband. Think about that for a minute. Your behavior as a wife towards an unsaved husband has the ability to be used by God to win them to obedience in Christ. I know men who have come to Christ because their wives were saved. Now, is that a guarantee? No. I know in a couple of instances, women who have separated, divorced their husbands, and years later, because their husbands saw them after they had gotten saved, came to Christ and remarried them. I know three couples that that's happened to who were brought to Christ because one of the individuals got saved even after they had divorced. It's amazing what God can do by the behavior of a submissive wife. 
or a Christ-like husband. One thing that stands out to me in this verse is that Paul uses the word for submission or subjection rather than the word for obey, which he does for children. That, I think, is key as well. We can't misunderstand that when Paul says, wives, be subject, that what he's saying is, you better obey! That's a word that's used for children. But it's not the word Paul uses here for wives. He says to subject yourselves elsewhere. He refers to it as being a form of respect and authority. A wife is not called to blindly obey her husband like a puppy or like a child. A husband who expects that is not a Christ-like head either. Nowhere in the scriptures does it demand that wives blanketly obey their husbands. They are to respect the authority and responsibility. That means that if it comes to a husband asking his wife to do things that don't honor Christ, I would argue she shouldn't do it. Now, she can find a way to honor her husband in that situation she needs to, but if it requires that she disobey Christ or disobey the word to do what he's asking, even Paul and the apostles said, we will do what God asks, not man. And so it's not about blanket obedience. She's not to be a doormat that she gets walked on. She's not to walk three steps behind her husband with her head down, not lifting her eyes like many in the Muslim world suggest or demand. She is to respect her husband because he has authority, but that does not mean blanket obedience. Paul summarizes that in Ephesians 5.33 saying, And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You can respect without obedience, primarily when it means that you're doing what the Lord asks you to do. So, a wife's submission is an act of respect toward her husband and the authority given to him by God. It's not an act of obedience, necessarily. And she should never disobey God in her submission to her husband. I'm reminded of a a woman, Dave Johnson, who was the leader of Campus Crusade for Christ in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, when I was there. His wife's name was Tamara. And he was sharing this example in one of our Bible studies one time. She was a very strong-willed woman. And they didn't always agree on things. Because Dave was a very strong-willed person, too. And so he was sharing this story one time as we were talking about this very passage, if I remember right. Um, And he gave us an example from his wife. He's like, so my wife and I, when we disagree, um, we get to this place where finally we will stop, and she will look at me and she'll say, okay, Dave, we can't seem to see eye-to-eye on this decision for the family or whatever we need, you know, whatever involves. So, I recognize that God has placed you over me as my head. And I am to respect that authority, which means at this particular moment, since we cannot agree, I'm going to yield to you and allow you to make this decision. And whatever decision you make, just be aware that I don't agree and that God is holding you responsible for that decision. (laughs) And that was where she would leave it. And she was perfectly fine if Dave would make the wrong decision because she's like, I'm trusting the Lord in this. And Dave told us, he goes, every time she does that, It reminds me to stop, to pray about it, and to listen to her. Because that's the role that God has placed her in my life for. And I can't just run roughshod over her. So he said oftentimes he changed his own opinion and followed her. Because after thinking about it, it made sense. That's a godly woman. Because she was willing to hold her husband accountable based on what God's expectation was but in a very respectful manner said, but that is your decision to make. But I'm going to remind you, I'm your helpmate. God put me here for a reason. But ultimately, because we can't agree, you're going to have to make the decision. But God's holding you accountable. I can stand before him and say, it wasn't me, God. I didn't make that decision. I think it's a great example. All right, let's move on to the husbands. 
Husband's faith in Jesus should be demonstrated through his love for his wife. Look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Paul uses the Greek word agapao here, which has a multitude of nuances to it. It's a very broad word for love. I'll give you some of the definitions from some of the Greek lexicons. One of them says, love based on evaluation and choice. It's a matter of will and action. So it's an action word. Another lexicon says it means to treat somebody with affection. A third says it means to be full of goodwill towards somebody. Another one even says love for someone based on sincere appreciation and high regard. You can see that there's just a new, a whole range of nuances to this word. Ultimately, it's the finest and most significant Christian virtue. It involves action, not just emotions. And it's everything from feeling affection to being, having goodwill towards somebody, doing good for somebody, being sincerely appreciative of who they are and what they are. That is what's wrapped up in this word for love. In fact, when we see John write that for God so loved the world, what? That he gave. It's a word of action as well. So Paul gives a broader description of what this kind of looks like in Ephesians 5. So turn there with me. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verse 23. I'm sorry, starting at verse 25. We first see that a husband's love for his wife should mimic Christ's love for the church. Notice what he says in 5.25, the very beginning of that. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. What does that mean? We are to love our wives just like Jesus loves the church. Isn't that a tall order? He also goes on to say a husband's love for his wife should be sacrificial. Look at the second half of verse 25 and gave himself up for her, which means our love for our wives should be sacrificial. We should be willing to give up ourselves for them. I think about my own dad, who, you know, we lived in a family where he was a millwright, didn't make a ton of money, made enough to support a family of, of six of us, but it was not always easy. But he would pull from his retirement savings so that he had money to take us down to Florida because my mom grew up in Florida and she was separated from her family. And so dad, to make sure that mom could still see her family, we didn't make enough to plan for those vacations. He would take out of his retirement account to pay for the trip that we would make down there. We would take three weeks out, three days driving down, because back then the interstate wasn't complete all the way down to Florida. We'd take three days to drive down and three days to drive back, and we'd spend about two weeks down there. My dad was sacrificial in that. I didn't know this until years later. My dad's teeth weren't the best. He wasn't terrible, but they weren't the best. And mom told us, He just wouldn't go to the dentist because we didn't have enough money to do that and so he would make sure that we had enough money to take you kids to the dentist. It was sacrificial. And a husband should be willing to sacrifice for his wife. Notice it also says here that a husband's love for his wife should be purposeful. Look Look at verse 26 and 27. So that he might sanctify her, meaning set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what Christ did for us. He loved us in such a way that there was purpose to it. He wanted to present to himself us, the bride, in all of our glory. He washed us with the word. He sanctifies us. That's the kind of love a husband's supposed to have for his wife. It's to be purposeful. He should be doing things to help and to encourage his wife, especially in a spiritual manner. He goes on and says that a love for the wife should be nourishing and cherishing. Look at verses 28 and following. 
So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. Now, that's not a selfish thing. How do we care for our own bodies? We usually take care of them, right? We don't want to do stuff to hurt our bodies. Likewise, we should love our wives with the same kind of commitment. He says, love wives as their own bodies. I think that's important because she is part of your body. She's one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. What does he mean by that? Essentially, if you love your wife this way, she'll be good for you. Remember, she's a helpmate. And if you do whatever you can as a Christian husband to help her be a good helpmate, she'll be good to you. So if you love your wife, you're in in fact loving yourself. Again, that's not a selfish thing in this context. Normally loving yourself is a bad thing, but not here. Some men, as I hear them complain about their wives, I think to myself, how much have you done to help them be a good wife? What have you done to encourage them? Maybe they're not a great wife because you aren't loving them like you should love them. You're not nourishing them. You're not cherishing them. You're not helping them grow or mature. If anything, maybe you're a stumbling block to them. I know men like that, unfortunately. Lastly, he said a husband's love for his wife should be as important as his love for himself. Jump down to verse 33. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as he loves himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So this is the charge that Paul lays out in Colossians chapter 3. Paul's con- or Paul contrasts this kind of love with a warning. Notice what he does here in verse 19 of chapter 3, Colossians. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered against them. To become embittered means to become angry or resentful. Generally, it's because we feel like we've been mistreated or unfairly disrespected. Back in the garden after the fall, what do we see with Adam? We see a foreshadowing, I think, of this. Remember what he said about when God came to him? The woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He wasn't going to take responsibility for it. Maybe there was more to that conversation. We don't know. The scripture doesn't always list everything God says. But I wonder if God looked at him and said, you bonehead, I made you responsible. Don't blame her. Now that's just me. Wouldn't put it past me if God said that, but I'm not saying he did. But I'm sure Adam, in his own head, is thinking, good grief, now look at this. Because of what she did, here I am. He was responsible for it himself. Peter may have had this in mind when he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3.7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot there. But essentially what Peter is saying is, don't be embittered with your wives. Live with them with understanding. Let me kind of couch this maybe. Um, The idea that she's a weaker vessel, she's simply different. And I think many of us would agree that God has designed and, and created men with a certain, in a certain way and women in a certain way. And I think that even from a secular sense, we understand sometimes the differences in the way that God makes it. My business, we hire mostly women because they're just playing better at the jobs that we have, the, the escrow stuff. It's a lot of multitasking. You know? And what's interesting is that they seem to do better than most of the guys. And so we hire mostly women. They're just, generally speaking, very different. And so... We're supposed to recognize that. We can't expect our wives to behave and think the way that we do. And when they don't, and we get all embittered and angry and upset, that's not loving them like Christ loves the church. And I have to admit, I've been guilty of that. I'm very black and white, very driven. And, and, and sometimes I will just, you know, I look at Amy, and if she doesn't do it the way I want it done, or we don't think exactly the same way, I have a tendency to, you know, get a little grumpy. But you can't allow that to fester. 
He says we're supposed to love like Christ and not be embittered against our wives. What's the takeaway from all this? Well, our relationship with our spouses should reflect the faith we have in Jesus Christ, plain and simple. A wife's faith in Jesus Christ demands that she respect and the authority of her husband. He's been placed over her as her head, and just like Christ subjects himself to God the Father, she's to subject herself to her husband. And a husband, his faith in Christ should demand that he love his wife just like the one who loves him. Just like Jesus Christ. That's the expectation here. So to live by faith in Christ means that it should be seen in our marriage relationships. Let's move on to parents and children. Let's start with a child. A child's faith in Jesus should be demonstrated through obedience. I see Dustin here is all excited. A child's faith in Jesus should be demonstrated through obedience to his or her parents. Look at verse 20. It says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children, be obedient in all things. The word that Paul uses here refers to listening intently and by implication heeding what is said. It's translated here as obey in most modern, modern translations, but there's actually an implication that goes beyond obedience. Rather, it has this idea of a child heeding what their parents say or what their parents teach them. I think, Matt, you might back this up or maybe not, but in the Old Testament, the word for hear and obey is really the same word, you know? To listen meant to obey. That's the idea. And so when Paul says here, obey your parents, he's not talking about just, you better just obey them. He's saying, listen to your parents. Respect what they say. Put it into practice. That's something we see throughout Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to do a couple of these, but Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and don't forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath around your head and ornaments around your neck. Look at um, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear, O sons, the instruction of the Father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and he said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. He goes on and on. You see that repeated throughout the book of Proverbs. The importance of a child listening to the instruction of their parents is what Paul is saying here in Colossians. is isn't just, children, obey your parents when they give you a command, otherwise you get in trouble. He's saying, listen to your parents. What they give you is wise counsel. You know, there's a reason why in some particular cultures and communities, there's none of that in the children. And they're coming from broken homes or there's no father in the home. And the mom's working two and three jobs and the children are left to raise themselves. And you wonder why there's the crime and other things? Even in a secular environment, generally there's something positive in what a child can be taught by their parents. Maybe not always, but generally, yes. Notice here that he says the children are to do this because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. It's one of the things we ought to teach our children is not to obey us just to obey us, but rather to obey us because it pleases the Lord. When we were raising Kimberly and Katie, and to some respects we still are, we've tried to raise them in a way that says, look, you know, when you disobey us, it dishonors the Lord. When you obey us, it honors the Lord. And we've always tried to bring it back to what the Scriptures teach, even when we spanked them. You know, we reserved that for 
You know, did we properly instruct them? Did they not know that they shouldn't do that? Because if we couldn't say, you know, yeah, they really didn't know they shouldn't have done that, but they shouldn't have, we couldn't spank them. But when it came time to where, yeah, you disobeyed and we had to spank them for it as an alter, you know, to a final alternative, we would explain to them what was happening, explain to them what they did, explain to them why it dishonored the Lord, then we would spank them, then we would tell them afterwards that we love them, we would hug them, we would sit them on our lap, and we would pray for them, so that it was always tied back to, this is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to teach them, listen to your parents because it's pleasing to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote that we should have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Ephesians 5.10, he says that we should be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what our, parent, or what our children need to see. We should be teaching them that what we're seeking to do is be pleasing to the Lord, and therefore their listening to our instruction should be something they're doing to be pleasing to the Lord. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, the children ought to obey their parents in the Lord because it's right. They're to obey in the Lord. Not just obey their parents, but obey the parents in the Lord. Because it's all about their relationship with Christ. That's what we ought to be teaching them. The parent who simply says, obey me because I'm your dad, that doesn't cover it. It should be, hey, the Bible says that you're to listen to my instruction. So I'm going to give you the best instruction I can. Listen to it. Heed it. Just as I heed the Lord's instruction. What I'm asking of you is what God asks of me. That's what a child should understand when it comes to obeying their parents. Paul mentions a couple of perks. I'll let you turn there on your own, but Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 gives a couple of perks. Live long. (laughs) You know, there's perks for obeying your parents. Perks for listening to them. Now, what about parents? Well, parents' faith in Jesus should be demonstrated through not exasperating their child. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Dustin, that goes back to you again. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. You'll notice that Paul actually directs this verse and the parallel verse in Ephesians chapter 6 to fathers. Now, you may have a translation that says parents, but the word is literally fathers. There's another word for parents. I believe Paul is talking to fathers here and fathers for a reason. How many of you, as you think about the mother's role and the father's role, would, would disagree with this? Maybe you do. That oftentimes the fathers are much more authoritarian, maybe less compassionate towards their children. Mothers are often geared to be the compassionate one with their children, you know. Dad, I mean, when I was growing up, it was always, wait till your dad gets home. It was never, wait till your mother gets home, you know. That would not scare the, you know, anything out of me. If it was, wait till your mother gets home, but wait till your dad gets home, that was something I would listen to, you know. Maybe God made us that way, I don't really know. But it's interesting that he says, fathers, don't provoke your children, That means to make them bitter. You have to be careful with that. If you are somebody who just simply drops the hammer, you're going to provoke your children to be angry. You're going to cause them, he says, to lose heart. You know, if a child is always just simply told what they do wrong, and I'll be real frank, this is an area that I've always struggled with because I'm really quick to correct things when I see that they're wrong and a lot less prone to praise when I see something they do right. That has always been me and it is a... It is something I struggle with. And I've always worried about that with my own kids. Am I going to crush their spirit by always correcting them when they're wrong but not praising them when they do right? Maybe I'm not alone as a father in that. I grew up with a young man. He was a good friend of mine in school when I was in high school. He was a bitter young man towards his father. And one of the reasons why was his father provoked him constantly. 
constantly. He never did, and I saw it. He never did anything right. I remember a time where he was downstairs lifting weights. He was bench pressing, and his dad came down and looked at it, walked over to him, grabbed it, and started curling it, and just said, you're weak, and put it down and walked away. He was constantly provoking him, and Chris ended up being very bitter. And you could see that even in the way that he reflected and responded to others, even me sometimes, right? I had to call him out on it and say, don't treat me like that as your friend. Just because your dad treats you like that doesn't give you the right to treat others like that. So he was very bitter. Couldn't do anything to please his dad. And you could see it in him. Rather than to provoke our children and cause them to lose heart, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Paul says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instead, that's the goal. I think this is a good reminder for us that, again, it isn't supposed to simply be correct your children whenever they're wrong. Always tell them what they're doing wrong. Just fix that and we're all okay. No, it's supposed to be that we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what our goal should be. When children are raised in an environment that's just a list of man-made do's and don'ts, and a father who simply says, don't do this or you're going to get this, I think it leads to provocation and discouragement. Raising children is much more than that, especially as Christian parents. Living out our faith in Jesus Christ means that we will teach our children the ways of Christ, the ways of the Lord. We'll not only teach them how to love, honor, and obey Him, but we'll demonstrate that for them in our own lives. I think that's why it's important when we have to correct our children to recognize that, hey, we're sinners too. And think about how Christ would respond to us and then respond to them. I'll let you turn here on your own, but Deuteronomy chapter 6 was God's command to the Israelites about living out their love for God and the word of God and how that's supposed to be written on their foreheads and on the tassels of their stuff and on the doorposts of their home. Those homes were supposed to be filled with the word of God. And I think that's important that when we Raise our children, Paul says here. Raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, which means this is our guidebook for what we teach them and how we raise them. And it isn't just the passages on children. There's an awful lot there that just tells us how to live life. And that ought to be what we're passing on to them. So what's our takeaway with that? Our relationship with parents and children should reflect the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Children should learn to heed what their parents teach them as an expression of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's right and it's pleasing to the Lord when they do that. That's what we should be teaching them. They're not going to learn it on their own. That's what we're, we should teach them. Parents should raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord as an expression of our faith and love in Jesus Christ. Lastly, let's look at the last thing that Paul addresses here. I'm going to label this the behavior of employees and managers should reflect their faith in Jesus Christ. Now the reason I do that is because these next verses are aimed at slaves and masters, which was common in the first century. As I mentioned in my introduction to this, about half of Rome was slaves, which means that in all likelihood, half of this church was probably slaves as well. We know that some in this church had slaves because he refers to masters here. In order to be a master, you had to have slaves. So we know that Paul is writing to a church that probably is at least half slaves and probably many slave owners. It was very common, even middle class families owned slaves oftentimes. So we have to keep a couple of things in mind with this. First, slavery at this time in the Roman Empire was very different than what we think of when we think of slavery. When we think of slavery, we think of going to Africa, capturing slaves and pulling them away from their families and bringing them here and then 
putting them up in chains and whipping them when they're bad. And, you know, that's what we think of as slavery. But slavery in the first century in Rome, they were generally either the spoils of war, enemies, um, or more often, they were bond servants, meaning somebody who either owed a debt of some kind or would come to somebody and say, I need X amount of money to buy some land or whatever, but I'll work for you. And so you obligate yourself to them for a period of time. And even the Old Testament law allowed for that, but said that after seven years they have to be let go. Meaning their, their obligation couldn't last, their loan couldn't last for more than seven years. Okay? So slaves were generally more bond servants than anything else. But they were still considered slaves. They were owned by their masters. So we can't downplay that. Masters had legal rights over their slaves, but generally they treated their slaves with more dignity and respect than you might expect during that time. And the reason was, a good slave was good for you. And because they were more like employees by our standards today than slaves like we think of with slaves, they generally were treated better. Now, with that said, not always. There were some mean masters. And so I don't mean to downplay that, But again, it's not like what we think of when we think of what happened here with African Americans. They generally, the Romans did think highly of their slaves. In fact, um, there was a fairly major difference between um, what Rome did in the B.C. area than how they treated the slaves in the the A.D. era, much of it because of pushback. Again, when you have half your population that's slaves... There's an awful lot of influence they can have. And so there were a lot of laws and things put in place that made it better as a slave than what it had been prior. So again, we have to be careful. Um, Now, also during this time, slaves could marry, they could accumulate wealth, they could run businesses, they could own properly, they could even purchase their own freedom. So again, very different than ours. They worked in all kinds of industries and they even generally got paid salaries. So again, very different But nonetheless, they were still slaves, and it wasn't always comfortable to be a slave. Not all masters were good. So we've got to be very careful that we don't paint it as this, oh, slavery was just jobs. Not really. It's not the same as us. I don't have a master, I have a manager. So it was very different. But the closest we could come to this today, I think, is the employer-employee relationship. Because we typically are not living in a time of slavery here. Now, it may explain why Peter and Paul both, neither one of them, attacked slavery. They didn't try to end slavery. Jesus didn't try to end slavery. That might be why, because it's not quite the same as what we think of today. Plus, it was a huge part of their culture and society. Okay? Um, So, what do we learn here? Well, Paul tells us that a slave's faith in Jesus was to be demonstrated through serving his or her master sincerely with his heart. Okay? Look at chapter 3, verses 22 and following. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now think about that. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, not just for show, as those who are merely trying to please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So it shouldn't have just been external service. It should be serving the Lord. Paul points out here that slaves are not simply to serve their masters according to eye service is another way to render that. It's a more literal rendering. Just don't treat them right when they're seeing you because you're not really supposed to be pleasing men. Instead, you're fearing the Lord and pleasing Him. You're to do it heartily. And that's because he's talking probably to believers here. And saved slaves, if you will, were supposed to respect their current masters. 
here on earth. And they were to serve them, not just with this external service, but with sincerity, with a heart, being good for their masters. What about masters? Well, look at verses, look verse 4-1. Well, actually, let me go ahead and finish reading that. Verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of an inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Paul calls on servants to serve, ultimately, Jesus Christ by submitting to their masters here on earth. Their Lord will, or their reward will come from Christ, not necessarily from their master. But when it comes to masters, look what he says, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. What's he getting at here? Literally, Paul wrote, Masters, afford to your slaves what is right and equal. That would be a more literal translation of that. Afford to your slaves what is right and equal. The first word right refers to that which is right in the eyes of God, which means they should treat their slaves in a way that the Lord approves of. The second word that he referred to there refers to equality or fairness. It's actually a word used in 2 Corinthians when it talks about the church selling or giving up part of their belongings to bring about equality among believers in the church. And so in essence, what he's basically saying here is treat them with equity, what is fair, and what is right. And that idea of treating them with equity may actually, some believe this, I don't know we can make enough argument for this, may refer to what they received in compensation. Treat them fairly. Compensate them appropriately for what they're doing. Remember, they often worked in industries, much like today, when we go out and we work for somebody else. We should be paid fairly for what we do. That would honor Christ. So a master's faith was to be demonstrated through right and equal treatment. Ephesians chapter 6-9 says, And masters, do the same things to them, referring back to how slaves were slaves to their masters, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In other words, what Paul requires of masters here is that they treat their slaves as equals. Treat them fairly, treat them right, but ultimately treat them as equals because they too have a master in heaven. And so that's the call for masters here. So what's our takeaway with this? I would say our relationship at work, whether we report to a manager or whether we are a manager, that should reflect our faith in Jesus Christ. How we either treat those we report to or whether we treat those who are subordinate to us, that report to us, Our faith in Christ should be reflected in how we treat them, plain and simple. I remember, and I've shared this story before, when my current boss became my boss, it was a very difficult transition because he didn't have much experience, but also accused me of a number of things that were not true, um, reduced my salary by about $5,000. In some respect, it was a penalty because he wasn't happy with some things that were going on that were of his own making. And so... Um, I struggled with that because how could I serve this guy? The former boss I had was phenomenal. It was easy to serve him. But I struggled with this. And Amy knows it. And I would talk to her. Well, I, I got to think about how, what I'm going to do here. And I thought about quitting, leaving, going somewhere else. But I finally in the end said, you know what? The Bible tells me that I'm supposed to serve Christ. So I chose instead to serve my manager. To do what I could 
to help him accomplish what his job was so that he might look good to his boss and to just say, you know what, Lord? Maybe I don't get compensated right for it. Maybe I was hurt because of this. But you know what? I'm serving Christ. And I just think you're going to want me to treat him with the same respect that I gave my former boss who I liked. And so I chose to do that. It was not easy. Now, in the end, it's turned out to be fantastic because um, we have a great relationship now. Um, Scott trusts me, has invited me to take on other tasks that none of the other IT guys were invited to do. Our relationship is very different now, and I believe it's because God used my submission to him in obeying the scriptures. It's not me. Christ had to work on my heart for that. That's a difficult thing to, thing to do sometimes. But when it comes to our work relationships, that's the way it is. Our faith in Jesus Christ should be reflected in how we treat them, even if they don't treat us always appropriately. We should treat them as Christ would treat us. Let's go ahead and just wrap this up. I would add that one last thing we could add to this is that how it all relates to how we treat others in general. Because we're Christians, we should treat everyone based on that relationship with Christ, should we not? So whether it's our relationship with our spouses, whether it's relationship with our children or our parents, whether it's a relationship with our boss or our subordinates at work, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's strangers, shouldn't we always, in those relationships, be reflecting our faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah, so it isn't just these things. It's every relationship we have. Whether it's relating to those who are saved or whether it's even relating to those who are unsaved. And that's especially difficult sometimes, is it not? But that's what Christ expects. When we think about the unsaved and our relationships with the unsaved, how do we reflect our relationship with Christ? Treating them like Christ would. Maybe our behavior towards them will change them and lead them to Christ. Maybe not. But they're certainly not going to come to Christ if we don't treat them that way. And so I think there's application here outside of these three relationships that Paul mentions. Amen?